This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Today's conversation is a rare glimpse into the life of someone who grew up in the foster care system. It is also a story of redemption, hope, and forgiveness. I sit down with Tori Hope Peterson and we chat about being removed from her mom's care at a young age, moving from one foster home to another, the circumstances God used to open her heart to him, discovering God was the father she had always longed for, allowing foster children to be the voice for policy change in our current system, and the longing for discipleship she experienced as a college student in crisis. Listen to what Tori has to say about the foster homes she lived in. Every foster home was different. Every family offered something different. Some were great examples. Some reflected Christ so evidently. And some were, it was very sad to live in the homes. And there were some that made me feel very disposable. But I think through all of that, I learned what I wanted in my own family, because I always knew that I wanted a family. And living when you're when you've lived with 12 different families, 12 very different environments, you begin to see the patterns of negative, destructive influences that parents can have on their children, that children can have on their parents. And you also see the fruit of the Lord, that the parents, you can see that parents are planting good seeds, that parents are instilling patterns in their children to look more like Christ. And they're also setting a great example for their children by living in a way that glorifies God's love, that reflects God's love. Oftentimes I say, oh, I went through 12 homes and it was difficult. But I learned so much about why people are the way they are. And I learned that every good attribute that people have is for a reason. And every bad behavior, bad characteristic that someone has usually comes from a hurt that has been afflicted upon them. Friends, I simply love this episode because Tori was vulnerable in sharing her life journey with me. It was like chatting with a dear friend. I hope today's conversation encourages you to extend grace to those who have hurt you, believe there is hope in what appears to be a hopeless situation, and to support the foster youth in your community. Hi, Tori. Welcome to Grace Enough Podcast again. (laughs) Hello, Amber. Thank you for having me again. I know. I need to back up because anybody that's listening would say, what do you mean? We haven't heard her before. And what you don't know is behind the scenes, we have recorded this whole thing a couple months ago. 
And, you know, sometimes things just happen with technology, and so I'm still clueless as to where the episode went, but we are excited to chat again. So go ahead and introduce yourself and your family to our listeners and tell them a little bit about what you do. Thanks, Amber. My name is Tori Peterson. Uh, My husband and my 10-month-old son and I live in Minnesota, and I do lots of things. I said that I am a dabbler. I am a yoga instructor. I'm a doula for someone in our town, um, which is like a birth servant. And I've spent a lot of time writing recently um, in hopes to publish a book in the future um, about growing up in foster care, my life. And I love posting blogs as well. What is the um, website where you blog? My blog is Tories, T O. R-I-S, stories, S-T-O-R-I-S. So without the stories, without the E, toristories.wordpress.com. Well, I've said this to you before, and as I learned a little bit more of your story, I couldn't help but think of Psalms 40, verse 2, where it says, He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Will you take us back to your childhood and begin telling our listeners your story? I grew up in the foster care system. Initially, I went in when I was four years old because my mother was associated with the mob in Toledo, Ohio, and she was caught possessing and selling out of our home. And then I was reunified with my mom um, about I think it was six months after that. I don't think I had a good perception perception of time when I was that young. But then I lived with my mom until I was twelve, and my mom is diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia. So there was a lot of mental and physical abuse mm-hmm. in the home. And then because of that abuse, I went back into the foster care system when I was twelve until I chose to emancipate out of the system when I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and. From 12 to 18, I lived in 12 different um, foster homes, group homes, respite homes. Respite is like short-term foster homes. You may stay there for like a week or two and you know that you're going in there short-term that the parents for some reason can't take you long-term. And then group home facilities are like residential facilities um, that often have a pinpoint objective, whether it has to do with behavioral issues, mental illness, um, reunification with the family, something like that. I don't think I realized that that was the case for all group homes. So that's a good, I mean, that's just something that I, I didn't realize. I know, obviously, there were some for behavior, but that's, um, I don't know, that's just a new thought for me. So yeah, I think that's my perception of group homes. Some people say that group homes are like modern day orphanages as well. I don't know mm. if I would agree with that. The or The group homes that I have I've only experienced two group homes out of the 12 where there, two of them were group homes. And those two both had a very clear objective. So like the first one, it was all about behavioral issues and getting counseling for any trauma that would cause those behavioral issues or that have may impacted why you have your behaviors. And then the second group home was a very very similar objective and had almost the same program. But I was actually staying there as a respite. Mm. But I watched all the other girls go through the program while I was staying there for a short-term stay, waiting for a foster home. So 
I think maybe that's not all right. Um, maybe there's some group homes that you just live in. Yeah, I don't but know. I, think, I mean, it does make sense because they probably have to have a reason to be supported by the government. Or being a 501c3. That's right. Yeah. Non-prof, yeah. Uh, yeah, I usually think that they have a different kind of rehabilitation. Like some are for foster youth who have been human trafficked. Oh, yeah. So, you yeah. know, they have a very clear objective for their healing process or for the hope to release that trauma. Yeah, well, let's... I just want to talk a little bit about your relationship with your biological mom. And, you know, something I had read that you had written is that when she was upset with you, she would tell you things like you were a product of rape. And I just want you to share what are some of the lies that you have really had to replace with truth in your mind and heart as a result of those words that were spoken to you? So going back to the first question for a little bit, I looked up the word Meyer because I was like, what is Meyer? I think it's like something I'm going to look, look up the definition right now. So the definition of Meyer is a situation or state of difficulty, distress, or embarrassment from which it is hard to exit oneself. When I thought of this first question and when I thought of your second question, the things that my mom has spoken over me have not just been difficult to handle because they are hurt, but because of who it's coming from. Mm. It's, you know, your, your mom is supposed to be someone who is encouraging and unconditionally loving. And when you are told these lies over yourself and any kind of lie, just like, like ones that may seem less than you're a product of rape, like you're stupid. Cause Absolutely. like many of us have been called stupid. Mm-hmm. It's so hard looking at a person you love and hearing that from them. And I think the only thing that has allowed me to heal from that has been hearing the truth from a, a higher person, someone who is above my mother, and that is God, hmm. knowing the truth of what he said about me. Yeah. And that is still, I would say, it's not like, Every single day, I'm like, I'm confident in who I am Absolutely. in Christ. I am full of grace and I am full of purpose and all these things that God fills us with. There are some days when I feel very insecure, mm-hmm. when I question if the things that my mom has spoken over me are true or the actions mm-hmm. that she has used to communicate with me. I wonder, am I unloved? Am I pos- Is it possible that God loves me, but no one on earth could ever love me. And the truth of that is that's impossible because I am made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the most important aspect of the truth is it's not about who I am alone, but who I am because Christ made me and because he dwells in me. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. Well, and I love what you say about it's not like you don't ever struggle with those same thoughts on a day-to-day basis because sometimes it can be something where people just think, oh, I'm saved. I shouldn't think any of this negative stuff about myself. I shouldn't do, you know, all of these things. And the reality is, is that, you know, God does say to us, I will work all things together for good and I have a plan for you, but... It is not completed until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is not until you exit this world, you know, so it is a journey. It is something that he 
is continuously doing in us to make us more like him. And part of that is tearing down the lies that we believe about ourselves, that the world has put on us, that we've put on ourselves, you know, and so on and so forth. Yes. And I have even thought at times of what you said in the beginning of that statement, like, oh, I must not be redeemed because of this harsh thing that I did or this harsh thing that I said, or because of this harsh thing that I have spoken over myself. And the truth of that is that we have to look at the little things. Sometimes I get so, I get so worried. Like, am I glorifying God? If I'm not, I'm not redeemed. I'm not saved. And God calls us to glorify him, but he also calls us to enjoy him. And we have to find enjoyment in those little things that are moving us towards God mm-hmm. rather than tearing apart those, those little sins and those big sins too, that are moving us away from God. We can acknowledge those, but ultimately grace has to cover, cover over those. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you had that little bit of time where you were in foster care the first time, and then you were with your mom for quite a while. What took place the next time that finally put you into foster care long-term? Will you kind of walk us through those events a little bit, and then we're going to dig into your time in foster care and after that? Yes, so I went into foster care again because at school, a teacher found scratches on my neck. And she asked me, where did you get those scratches? And I said, my dog. (laughs) And she said, those look bigger than a dog. From there, she took me down to the guidance counselor's office and child and family services came in. I was initially put with a family with my younger sister and then we were put into a foster home and then we were separated after that first foster home together. Mm. And then I went into a group home and then all foster homes preceding that. And during that time, did you get to have a relationship with your sister during all the various locations? It was very difficult to have a relationship with my sister. She, we don't have the same biological father. Mm -hmm. So she was living with her biological father, which I would say wasn't a very healthy situation. Because of that, they didn't really have the resources to allow us to stay connected. Mm. There was a couple times when her biological father brought her to the group home I was living at to visit, but I lived there for probably about a year and a half and he only brought her twice. So it was really difficult to keep up that relationship. And that's probably one of the most, if not the most heartbreaking Mm. thing about, I think my foster care journey is losing that relationship with my sister. I'm 10 years older than her. So when she was born, I was very much a caretaker to her. We were very close. I remember when she when she was born, I was in the hospital room. I held her when my mom was resting. Mm. Sometimes when people ask me about my sister, as I'm like struggling over my words right now, I still don't know what to say about that relationship. Because I pray for it and I know that God is sovereign overall and he wants good for my sister. And I, I want so much good for my sister and I want her to know the Lord. And so I feel like I'm just always patiently waiting for one, God to enter into her heart, for her to know God and for us to find a closeness again. I actually just made a post about this on Instagram like 30 minutes ago. Do you about, have any connection with her now? Yeah. So now she lives with 
a man who she, it's not her biological father. Cause like I said, that was uh, an unhealthy situation. And this situation is my mom dated a man and she looked at this man as her father and he is a good man. And she lives with him and his wife, but they don't like my mom. And I have a relationship with my mom mm-hmm. as well. And because I have a relationship with my mom, they won't let me have a relationship with my sister. And I just, when I'm speaking about these things, I think I can't help but think about when people talk about how you have your biological kid and you have your foster kid or, and you have your adopted kid and people are like, they're all the same. They're, everything is the same. And it's like, it's not the same. These things are so complicated to talk about. We can love our kids the same, all the same. We can, we can have the same degree of love for our children, but the answers that foster and adopted adopted youth have to come up with when they're asked about their siblings and their family and who they are and why they might look different than their family are so complicated. Yeah, these these answers are so complicated and hard for me in terms of my and sister. It's really our responsibility to not treat them like they all are the same. I think sometimes I mean, I hate to even bring up this topic, but people will say that, you know, when it comes to racism, oh, I don't see color. And I'm like, well, that's part of the problem. Right. (laughs) Part of the problem is that you're not noticing, not that we're different in a way to where we can't love people the same, but just acknowledging someone for who they are means that if they're a different color than you, it's okay to be like, no, you, you have experienced something different for me. Just like if... You're raised in inner city New York, and I'm raised in the country of Kentucky. Our experiences are very different. Right. And there's something about when we are ignoring a blatant aspect of someone's identity, mm-hmm. we're not learning from them. Mm-hmm. We're not learning how they're fully made in God's image. And then we're losing knowledge about not just ourselves, not about the neighbor that we're supposed to love, but about Christ. Mm-hmm. And his it's a real it's a real poverty when we ignore these things and when we're uncomfortable in the vulnerability of these things. If when we're not willing to be uncomfortable in the situations, we're really losing a lot of compassion that we are able to have, a lot of compassion we're able to offer mm-hmm. in a lot of like deep relationships. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times it's from a well-intentioned heart because they don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable and they don't want to feel uncomfortable. But the reality is, is that ignoring it makes it so much worse for the other person. Right. I always say, if you can't sit across the table from uncomfortable, you cannot sit across the table from love. So Mm. many people want to love, but they don't want to be uncomfortable. And those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, because it takes you really, really dying to yourself. And that is essentially uncomfortable. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, tell me, what was it like, your your various foster families, uh, your group home experience? What was it like? Every foster home was different. Every family offered something different. Some were great examples. Some reflected Christ so evidently. And some were, it was very sad to live in the homes. Mm. And there were some that made me feel very disposable. Wow. But I think through all of that, I learned 
what I wanted in my own family. Cause I always knew that I wanted a family mm-hmm. and living when you're, when you've lived with 12 different families, 12 very different environments, you begin to see the patterns of negative, destructive influences that parents can have on their children, that children can have on their parents. And you also see the fruit of the Lord that the parents, you can see that parents are planting good seeds, Mm. that parents are instilling patterns in their children to look more like Christ. And they're also setting a great example for their children by living in a way that glorifies God's love, that reflects God's love. Oftentimes I say, oh, I went through 12 homes and it was difficult, Mm -hmm. but I learned so much about why people are the way they are. Mm -hmm. And I learned that every good attribute that people have is for a reason and every bad behavior bad characteristic that someone has usually comes from a hurt Mm -hmm. that has been inflicted upon them. Mm -hmm. And that has allowed me to, it's just allowed me to see more of who people are individually and and oftentimes, yes. And be, be more empathetic, have more compassion, try my best. I always try my best to ask good questions rather than making assumptions about people. Mm. Because, like I said, everyone is the way they are because they have endured something or because they have went through something that has impacted them to be that way. So true. It's so, so true. Well, you shared something with me in our last conversation about your coach, your high school coach, and your, I want to say it was your last foster mother. Um, Will you talk to us a little bit about that situation? Yes, I was just coming into faith, asking a lot of questions about God. I wouldn't say that I had proclaimed Jesus as my Lord and Savior, Jesus as the father of my life. Which, hold on, pause there. Like at this point, how had you even come to know anything about Christ? So my second to last foster home, they did take me to church. We did devotions at the table. But they, so I was, you know, I had questions about God. And then in high school, we were reading Atlas Shrugged okay. by Ayn Rand. And Ayn Rand has um, a philosophy that would endorse, endorse atheism. And this is, that's so ironic, right? Mm. But her philosophy made me ask a lot of questions about God. I started to read philosophy, which led me, it led me to all kinds of philosophy and all kinds of books about the divine, the mysterious God, all of these different, I guess, names of God. And through that process, paired with being in church community, I started to ask more questions and a lot of my questions started to be answered. And then I was, I was kind of conflicted because I was like, I think this Christianity thing might be like a face that people put on to look good Mm. because my foster parents, who were taking me to church, who was doing the devotion, abused their adopted children. Hmm. And in very manipulative, strange ways. Not like hitting or kicking. It was like making the Rottweiler attack the little boy. Or 
very, very strange. Um, and to, and then they would tell me, Oh, they're, they're just, the dog's just playing. They're just playing. And I would think, Oh yeah, they're just playing. Like, and she, the mom was a child psychiatrist. So I was like, she knows what she's doing. Like she knows that this would harm him in any way if, if it was. And she would say things like that too. Like, I know what's, what's going on. I know what's good for him. And I was like, yeah, she knows what's good for him. Of course she's, she's an adult person who is a child psychiatrist. She has a degree. Hmm. So very manipulative and, I had friends who were telling me, Tori, this isn't okay. And that really opened my eyes and made me question God. Mm. And then in my next foster home, because they were caught abusing their children, I moved to, I had to be moved to another foster home. My foster mom just loved the Lord. You are paid um, when you're a foster parent. And I don't know if she pocketed any of that money. She just always made sure that I had what I needed. I ran track in high school. I was a pretty picky eater. I always wanted to eat like really healthy because I wanted to be really good at track. And then you have to, you know, you have to purchase a lot of produce. You have to purchase good yeah. food. And she made sure that she did that. She bought me nice track shoes. She made sure that I got to track practice and she really extended herself. She was also um, for contact. She was going to school to be a nurse and that's oh, hard work. It is. And she just extended herself so graciously to make sure that I felt important, that I felt loved, that I felt like I was a child of God, like how God would want us to feel as his children. And then that paired with my track coach, who was the most consistent adult throughout my time in foster care. I moved often, but my caseworkers kept me at the same school. I did very well in school. Um, I was very successful in track, so they strived to keep me in the school that I was attending. I think that was one of the absolutely best things that they could have done. And because I received such a good education, which I think is just crucial. And I had a very good, strong track team. And my track coach was the consistent adult mm -hmm. throughout that time because I was able to stay at the same school and I was able to stay in track and the summer between my junior and senior year, I mostly practiced just because I wanted to get out of the house. I enjoyed running. I enjoyed being active. I was okay at track. Um, I was above average, but I wasn't like phenomenal. I had never been to like a state championship by myself. I didn't think that I was going to be able to run in college or anything. I just liked running in high school right. and it was a small town. So like it was like small town, good at track kind of good. Yeah. And then the summer in between my junior and senior year, I was just running around the track doing the drills that my track coach told me to do. And he said, if you do everything I tell you to do, I think you'll be able to win state and get a scholarship to college. In my head, I was like, just being as ornery and stubborn <laughs> as I was, I was like, I'm just going to do everything he tells me to do. And then if I don't, win state or get a scholarship to college, I'm just going to blame it on him. <laughs> <laughs> We're such selfish little, little creatures, aren't yeah, we? <laughs> my little 17-year-old self, very selfish self. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I did. I did everything he told me to do. I showed up at every practice. I ate the food he told me to eat. He told me to eat generally healthy, drink a lot of water, get, get the sleep you need at night. I did those things. And I became a five-time state champion my senior year, and I received a full ride to college. And for the first time, 
I felt like I had something to be confident in myself about. Yeah. And I saw that people in my community treated me differently. Not that that like not that we should treat people differently because they are successful at things, but it made a huge difference about being it's not a confidence that remains. I wouldn't encourage this confidence, but I think it was a catalyst for finding confidence in Christ. Mm. Hmm. That's a good so, perspective. I guess my track coach encouraging me that I could be successful despite being a foster youth because the, the statistics of foster youth are very saddening in terms of graduating from high school. I think 2% obtain a college degree. Not that like, and again, not that like college is the end all be all, but in comparison to youth who do not age out of foster care, that is a stark difference. And there is a reason for that. So I think that encouragement, that and confidence that he believed in me really was a catalyst for me to find confidence in, in Christ. Well, yeah. And how did you eventually end up saying like, yes, Jesus, I do want you to be Lord and Savior of my life? It was a slow process. Just I am such a questioning, skeptical person, less skeptical now, because I trust the Lord much more than I did then. But I, I was very skeptical and I was very questioning. But I think that God, that's a gift that God granted me to use to love the mystery of God. I love the mystery of God. Mm, I love reading books about who he is. And I love unveiling more of who God is in me, how he has made this world to be what it is. It's, I find it. That's why I find like, that's why I praise him. That's why I find so much enjoyment in him. He is truly, truly amazing. And so, um, just asking the, asking these questions slowly, coming to conclusions within the church, through scripture, through Christian books that sit along and inform scripture. Um, A lot of my questions were answered that way. And I was always just kind of unhappy that I didn't have a dad. I was like, why don't I have bitter? I was like, why don't I have a dad? Mm. I had seen my relationship with men. Um, That was something that I idled And I felt like if I had a relationship with a father, this probably isn't something that I would, you know, you see young women with good fathers, they don't idle relationships with boys, like in their young ages. Hmm. And they approach relationship with boys. So in such healthy ways, and I saw that pattern when I was young and it was like, I couldn't, even though I knew it, I couldn't break it. And I found so much frustration in it. I was like, why wouldn't you give me a father, God, like, if you really love me, why wouldn't you give me a father? And it was just like this realization as I was getting my questions answered. And I was able to look back on my life that God did give me a father, that he was my father, Lord of my life. He had protected me in every little thing. Every foster home prepared me for the next, every no prepared me for the next. Yes. Hmm. In realizing that I realized that God wanted I believe that God wanted to bring the most glory to himself through my life in making him my heavenly father, as he is all of our heavenly fathers. But I just, when I think of God, I think of Abba, like Mm. daddy. Yeah. He is the comforter. He holds me as his daughter when I am, when I am crumbling and crying. He is 
the father that every little girl has always wanted to me. It's such a testimony of just how faithful God is as well because of the way I look and I see, you know, he placed you in this foster home at a very crucial time with a woman who did love him and who really did seem to love you. And then I know you said your coach really kind of became like a father figure to you, correct? Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about what you just said that is so interesting. Yes, like he placed me in that last foster home to show me someone who reflected him so lovingly. But even before that, you could see in, in the foster home where the people weren't reflecting God, that I think it, it was like a, he wanted to show me this contrast that people can use his name in a way that does not glorify him, in a way that glorifies themselves as a mask, um, in a legalistic way. Or people can use his name to love people, to love him, to glorify him, to make his creation better. Yes, all those things. And I think the second part about how he gave me an earthly father, it was after I said, God, you are, you know, I always said it like, oh, I just want, it's like the cry of my heart. Like, I just want a dad. I just want an earthly father. I want a good foster father. Hmm. And that I'm close to, um, that I can relate to. And I was a sporty girl too. So, you know, you right. want like a dad who's like into your sports and stuff. Yeah. I, again, I was just bitter about it. And then as soon as I like accepted, like, oh God, you've been over this your whole life. Like you're my sporty, like you're my sporty dad. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I accepted that, he's like, here's an earthly father. It is such a pattern in my life. I am a gripping, I can be a gripping, controlling person. And, girl, and, I just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when I let go, God's like, look what I have for you. Yeah. Every time. I just need you to trust me. Yes. I just need you to trust me. It's like over and over and over again. I'm just waiting for you to trust me. Yes. And that waiting, sometimes I was reading and I actually posted it. Actually, you may have commented on it on Instagram as well. That whole, you know, Moses waited 40 years. You know, all of these people that we read about, they waited and sometimes like what God is going to give us requires waiting that is just not always waiting for like a week. I mean, it can be years and decades of waiting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it is in those times of suffering that we experience just a blimp, just a speck of what God experienced. And it draws us to him like, mm -hmm. God, this is part of who you are and this is how we become close to you. It's just that intimacy again, going back to like Abba, that intimacy right. of like, of that's also, I feel what, when I wait, I'm always like, God, how are you trying to bring me closer to you right now? Because I am not liking how this feels. Yes. And I feel, <laughs> but I know that is because you love me. So tell me, tell, and then, and then I get impatient about like, tell me, like, what are you trying to do? <laughs> yeah. Like I am losing my patience with you. And he's like, just trust me. I've got it. Well, you ended up, I mean, you did run track in college and for a season of time, you spent, uh, well, you spent some time on Capitol Hill writing a policy to present to the White House policy staffers and the congressmen and women about how to reduce abuse and neglect within the foster homes. 
What are some ways that you believe, you know, our state and our federal government could go about improving the foster care system? My policy was specifically about how to reduce abuse and neglect in foster homes. There's very little statistics on abuse and neglect in foster homes versus if you look at abuse and neglect in the homes of biological parents. That's pretty um, accessible to find. First off, the data, it needs to be researched. Um, It needs to be recorded. Mm. I think we have a lack of data, and that's oftentimes because caseworkers brush that abuse under the rug. Because caseworkers are accountable to the county in the state. Um, They need to keep a certain amount of homes in the area to place foster children when they go into care. In some foster homes, as many people know, there's foster homes like bunk beds on bunk beds, and there can be like 12 youth in one home. Gosh, that's just crazy. Oftentimes, those are the homes where abuse and neglect gets pushed under the rug the most, because how are you going to place 10 or more kids in one night in a small town where there's limited foster parents. So in my policy, I wrote that caseworkers are mandated mandated reporters, but guardian and litems, which are their job description, and then CASAs. So there's guardian and litems and there's CASAs, court-appointed special advocates. Their job description is to advocate for what is in the best interest of the child. But they're not mandated reporters of abuse and neglect in all states. So that's a contradiction, right? Like the people who are supposed to advocate for what is in the best interest of the child are not mandated reporters, whereas caseworkers are, but they don't necessarily work for the child. I think a lot of caseworkers, they go into social work for great reasons, but I think because the system is broken and giving caseworkers such large responsibilities, large loads that caseworkers find themselves in attention to keep their jobs, maintain the homes of children, even though they may not be safe, as well as keeping children safe. Mm. That's a really hard situation to be in. And then on top of all of that, many of these caseworkers have their own families that they need to support. Right. (laughs) And... That is a lot for one person. And caseworkers can have like you. I think the average caseload of a caseworker is 30 or more. Wow. That's a lot. lot. So in my policy, I recommended that guardian ad litems come alongside caseworkers. They do these investigations alongside them. They are mandated reporters and they almost play the same role, but they don't work for the county. And they don't need to maintain the number of foster homes. They don't have the same conflicts as the caseworker does. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just so much. It is. And it's, it's a language that it's like the rhetoric of it is even just that it's hard to wrap my head around sometimes, let alone all of the legalities and technicalities of it. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, there's so much I want to go into there, but it is, it's just, I think it can be really, really difficult to navigate, you know, how do we make these changes? And 
particularly when you're dealing with things, and this is for any change you're trying to make. It's like you've got to keep going to those congressmen and women and asking them to take it, you know, before whatever whatever position they may hold. But it's just so different when you're looking at it and you're experiencing it on a real life level, whereas you lived in a home and you understand versus so many of these people who are trying to make policy changes, they have no idea what's going on. They're just reading papers. But what do you say, like, what is just so important for people to do to help their voices be heard in regards to like the foster care system? Is it contacting your, you know, congressmen and women regarding certain things? Or do you have any advice for us, the layperson? I think we have to view the foster youth and the foster parents as the experts. Oftentimes we look to caseworkers and the people who have done the research and the people who have the statistics and the congressmen and the congresswomen, which are good resources, but they aren't the people in the trenches. The people in the trenches are the foster youth and the foster parents who are dealing with the trauma daily, who are butting heads daily, forgiving one another daily. And I think if we look to them and we ask the questions, we're going to get a lot of answers to solve the problems that we have in the foster care system. Mm. Thank you. Well, we're going to kind of shift gears here just a little bit as we begin to finish up. But while you were attending one of the most conservative colleges in the nation, you became pregnant out of wedlock. And you wrote a blog titled The Pro-Life Conservatives Contradiction, which was quite profound in my opinion, and I will certainly link to it in the show notes for listeners who would like to read it. But will you share with us your experience and the way that you were treated by conservative Christians, for lack of better terms, versus the liberal non-Christians? So I'm so glad that you find that very controversial blog profound, (laughs) because some people really dislike it. (laughs) Well... (laughs) And my intent was not to offend people, but to just open people's eyes to our rhetoric that can often be contradicting to our biblical beliefs. Well, I think that goes back to what you said earlier about if you can't sit across the table from uncomfortable, then you can't can't sit across the table from love. Yes. So when I was in college, my now husband and I got pregnant before we were married, and Looking back, I think being at the most conservative college in the nation, I think a lot of of the students there weren't necessarily, they didn't know, like coming from a conservative culture, sometimes your parents and the people who you're always around, they don't talk about the possibilities of if you go out of your culture. So when, (laughs) when that happens, you don't know how to react. And it's not that you're like intentionally trying to act mean or unloving. Right. But when you're sitting across the table from someone who you've talked to for the last three years and they have no idea what to say to you, you can feel really, I mean, I felt so unloved in that position so often and the the great hurt, though, in that entire, I don't even know what to call it. I'll just call it a situation. It was a mess. And the, the entire mess of a situation was the people who were not students, the people who, and this is probably 
I would say not necessarily just at the school, but people in the broader church. And I don't mean church like the congregation, the place where you sit, the building. I mean church, like yes. Christian people. Like capital C as in all the people that make up the church? Yes, all the people that make up the church. I think the greatest hurt came from people who we thought were so, and when I say we, I mean me and my husband, people who we thought were so mature in their faith, who we had looked up to spiritually, we felt like they did not reach out and love to us. We had so many questions. We were hurting. We were in crisis. Mm -hmm. Like we knew what to do. I would, uh, abortion was never a question, Mm -hmm. but you don't know what to do in terms of your faith. How do you communicate this to people? I'm still a Christian. I still love the Lord, but I have walked in sin and now everybody knows about it. And no one guided us through that. Mm. Again, I think it goes back to like asking good questions. No one I feel like no one really asked us the questions that we needed to be asked. I th- and I think looking back, I just wish someone would have asked us, like, why do you think you guys did this? Why do you think you guys send? Mm. Because we carried, like, people think, okay, the sin is having sex before marriage, which it is. But the sin is caused by an idol in our heart. Mm-hmm. And no one asked us what we were idling or What was the deeper fear or hurt? Again, because often that behavior stems from something intrinsical. Mm. Why, what was that intrinsical thing? And so we carried that into our marriage. And I I would say that we really weren't completely sure. And like what that was until like eight months into our marriage, when we listened to a sermon about fear of man and we were like, oh yeah, that's us. Like we feared what, he feared what I was going to think, and I feared what he was going to think. I thought, this man will leave me if I don't do this with him. And he thought, like, well, what will this woman think of me if this is what she wants to do? And I don't do it. Will she think that I'm less of a man? So it's interesting to be having this conversation with you again, because I just released episode 38 today with Mo Isom, who wrote the book, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. And she and I talk so much about the power of our testimony, the power of words, and how the enemy has done such a great job silencing the church with shame Mm -hmm. when it comes to sex. And so many times it's because we're like afraid we're going to mess up or it's that we're in bondage to our own previous sexual sin and we just don't want to talk about it. And I'm sure there's other things, but as I've thought about that, I've thought so many times like, why, why are we so quick to just think, okay, nobody should have sex before marriage. Well, we're so quick to think that because God's word asks us not to do that. But then when someone does, it's like we all just go silent and we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, guys, it is Jesus. It is Jesus who went to the adulterous woman at the well and basically asked her to confess her sin, told her to go and sin no more, but also empowered her to like share his love with the world. And Mo was talking about that. And I just started thinking like, what if someone does something and we know it, and instead of just ignoring it, we came alongside them and said, hey, 
yes, you did this and it is wrong, but we're not the ones who can sit in judgment of you because number one, we're not Jesus. Number two, we're sinners as well. And number three, the whole goal is to help people know that they are loved despite their sin and to help them to walk down a different path. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when I came to the Lord, I felt like when I came to the Lord, I was like Job. We're like, God loved me. He gave me Mm. so much. I was faithful. And then when there was this sin exposed to everyone that was evident, I felt like David. And like, I didn't know how, again, to like walk through this sin, how to even just repent to the Lord, the people that I I had hurt. Mm. And I had seen a shift in my faith in the way that I viewed myself as a reflection of Christ. And I didn't know how to even approach God anymore Mm -hmm. because it was two very different situations. Like Job, Job loses everything because like God wants to test him. I feel like I'm not Job, but I feel like, you know, in the situation of like foster care, I I lost like my family and I had to have faith um, through losing very important things that most people just have. Yeah. It was an entirely different shift of faith to repent of sin, to come to Christ, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for the forgiveness of others. And no one, I feel like no one really walked me through that. Yeah. And I think some people, again, I think some people think like, oh, well, if she's a Christian, that stuff is obvious. (laughs) But... But we have to remember, like, people need disciples. And Absolutely. these things are not obvious to people who did not go, grow up in Christian homes, to people who aren't extremely familiar with Scripture and the church. Well, and even people who are, because I know people who got pregnant who grew up in Christian school, abandoning them and shaming them is not the answer. Mm-hmm. It's not what Jesus would do. He would confront it, ask you to do it no more, and then empower you to live differently. And yes, we are not Jesus, but he has called us to be his hands and feet, which mean we don't abandon people in their sin Mm -hmm. or shame them. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so easy to do that. But I still think so much of it is people are just... They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. So you just think if I ignore it, it's going to go away or mm-hmm. they're fine. They're fine. Yes. And I, I talked to one friend after a, a good deal of time afterwards and she apologized for not coming to me, being upfront about it. And she said, I didn't want to come to you because I was doing something similar. Mm-hmm. I just didn't get caught. And yeah. it's like sometimes we don't we don't confront people because we don't want to expose the sin in ourselves too. Oh, for sure. And it's like the vul- it's not just like being exposed to the vulnerability of another person, but being exposed to the vulnerability and uncomfortable parts of ourselves. Yeah, or it's like, yeah, I'm over here and I'm a believer too, but I also had sex before marriage and I also looked at pornography and I also used to masturbate and I mean it just goes on and on and on and again it doesn't bring freedom to hide it Mm -hmm. or to ignore other people who are really in need of someone to come and walk alongside them 
And it's, it's in scripture that if we do not confess Mm-hmm. that Satan uses that mm-hmm. as a stronghold. For sure. For it's so sure. crucial that, yeah, we confess that we are just forthright yeah. about these things. Well, for people who may be listening that, let's just say they, I mean, I have some friends who are foster parents and just released an episode a couple of weeks ago with my friend Lindsay Henson she and her family are on the foster care journey. And I know you and your husband are in that process right now, or at least I think so, right? Of getting... Yes, yes, we are. Yeah. And so there's people who are fostering, who have potentially grown up in the foster care system. There are people who are absolutely right now maybe listening going, oh my goodness, this is all news to me. <laughs> what? I mean, like I know it exists, but I did not think that it existed in this manner. But... um <laughs> What are some lessons you feel like you've learned? I know there are probably tons of them, but just as a result of your life experience that you would really like for some of our listeners to know. I think I've already mentioned this, but the greatest lesson that I have learned in foster care is that everyone is the way they are for a reason. Mm. And I want to bring up grace because this this podcast is called Grace Enough. So I really have always struggled to offer myself grace. Mm-hmm. I was reading The Sacred Romance this morning. Yeah. And, you know, it speaks a lot about grace, maybe not explicitly, but the concept of grace. While reading it, I thought I could really offer myself more grace. And that would really help me um, offer grace to the people around me more. And so I asked myself, How do I offer myself more grace? And when I think about foster parents, how do they offer their children more grace? Oftentimes in our culture, I think we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves in the Christian culture to reflect God Mm -hmm. and just culture in general to be successful, to accomplish. And when I answered that question, I just thought I have to go back to being like a child and enjoying God, enjoying the mystery of him resting. And I was watching as I was reading, I was looking over, I was was sitting outside and there's a little pool and my son was like splashing in the pool. And he's just getting to this point where he, everything is new to him. Everything is beautiful. And I think if we just go back to that and let that be grace, because grace is also, what is, I know that there is a definition for grace, but sometimes unmerited grace can seem favor. like such this, like, yes, un, it's unmerited favor. This, And it's like, if we can remember like the unmerited favor when we see, when we're like splashing in the water or just go back to the little things of like being like a child, seeing people through the eyes of a child. Like when I think about, foster parents, seeing their children through the eyes of children. And then when I think of people who have went through the foster care system and it has just wrecked them, I think of seeing themselves as children made in the image of God. Again, going back to that intimacy of seeing God as daddy, I think all of those perspectives really speak to the favor that God has given each of us. Well, you mentioned earlier that you do have a relationship with your mom. Can you tell us a little bit? Because I know people will probably be like, wait, we want the rest of the story. What does that look like now? 
Yeah. So I, did I mention that my mom is diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia? I'm not sure. Yeah. So because of her disorders, it can sometimes, I would say that our relationship is very up and down on and off. So I try my best to pursue her again. Like you were talking about like the woman at the well, I want to love my mom. I want my mom to know Christ more than I want like anything (laughs) because yes, she has mental illness that can sometimes like, I'm like, Oh, this is unredeemable, but really it's not like if she knows the love of the Lord, God can heal all of that and wash all of it clean. And that is my greatest desire that my mom knows that. So I try my best to pursue her, to love her, not that like it all depends on me because it doesn't. And like God will do that in his timing. Right. But I do want my mom. I don't, you know, when my mom is also heavily into drugs. So the people that she hangs around, the environment still. she's in, she's probably not yet yeah, still. She's probably not going to see, you know, where is she going to see the Bible? Where is she going to see God? And like this, I may be the, the only place. And so I try my best to love her. We, we talk on the phone, we FaceTime. She, you know, I FaceTime her with my son. She calls herself GD because she wants to be the cool grandma. We laugh and we, we talk. Um, I would say probably like every two weeks or so. Um, sometimes we go a little, but we, sometimes we go a little bit longer when she may have an outburst or a spat or she might threaten me and my family like she said things like I'm gonna get Leander taken away so you know what it feels like for your kids to be in foster care and I'm like okay we're gonna take a step back now and so then maybe I won't talk to her for like a month and a half or two months I think we slowly kind of ease back into it like how are you doing do you want to talk and then usually we go back to laughing and just having normal conversation the best way that we can until probably another outburst happens. So it's kind of like that pattern. There is a lot of forgiveness and a lot of... On your part. And yeah, and I would say a lot of mercy. Trying to remember that my mom is who she is for a reason. She has endured great trauma when she was when she was young that I think has probably caused her to be mentally ill like she is. And so just trying to remember that though she is sometimes very hurtful Mm. because God is in me. It has nothing to do with like, I would not be able to forgive my mom if God was not in me, but because God lives in me, I am able to forgive and move forward in love. I mean, and even just having heard your story, you know, now twice and having read some other things, you are just doing such a beautiful job of extending grace to her because I know personally it's not easy to extend grace to your parent when they've really hurt you. And so Mm -hmm. thank you for being that example to me that, yes, everyone has a past and typically something that happened to them as a child is what really determines a lot of the ways they behave as an adult. And so um, remembering that does help you to extend grace. And so thank you. Yeah. Well, we will close up because we have been chatting for a while with, um, if you had the opportunity to give some wisdom or just, you know, some advice to your great grandchildren, what would you like for them to know? 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> you don't have to answer. We can end if you want. Cause we haven't uh, no, chatting forever. I, I, I think that God has always spoken humility over me um, paired with the verse to whomever much is given of him shall much be required. Mm-hmm. I think that I have just been so abundantly blessed by the Lord and I think I would want my children, my grandchildren with everything that God is going to give them. Because no matter, no matter what your, looks, your life looks like, you have everything that you need to be blessed from the Lord. And so I just want my children and my grandchildren to remember to be humble with the things that they are given. And when we have that humble heart, I think we're able to extend more grace to others yeah. as well as learn from others and be always, when you, when we have humility, we're always open to the work that God can do in us versus when we're prideful, when we think we know what we're doing versus what Christ is doing. We, we can't fully receive the blessings of God. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Tori, for sitting down with me. Tell our listeners, you, you told us at the beginning where we can find you um, and your blog. Is there anywhere in social media that we can find you? Yes, um, I have an Instagram. It is Tori, T-O-R-I, Hope, H-O-P-E, Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N. That's right, not O-N. Peterson. <laughs> yes, Peterson is with all E's. That's right. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so happy to talk. I'm happy that we got to talk twice. Me too. And that it <laughs> finally worked. With you. Yes. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.